Hello, welcome to the Public Procurement Podcast with me, Peter Telso. Today, I'm interviewing Niels Hunk, a part-time researcher at the Public Procurement Research Center, a joint interdisciplinary research center of the universities of Utrecht and Twente in the Netherlands. Before joining academia, Niels worked five years as an international consultant in supply chain and logistics optimization at a private company called Ortec. He specializes in public procurement of long-term social health care services. Our conversation will focus on the challenges of procuring precisely this type of services. Hello, Niels. Welcome to the program. Good morning, uh, Pedro. Thank you uh, for, uh, for providing me the opportunity to talk about my research. My pleasure. So, Niels, you have a mixed background because you, you're working in academia, but you're still connected to practice. So, can you give us a little bit of a flavor of what's your actual background? Yes. So, um, after graduating my uh, master's in industrial engineering and management, I worked five years in, uh, in a private company called Ortec, like you mentioned, uh, in supply chain and logistics optimization. And uh, after five years, uh, I was ready for a new experience and I joined the Public Procurement Research Center, which uh, has quite a unique position for me, where uh, in half of the time I get to work on my PhD research and the other half of the time I do paid work, so advisory work or uh, research for other institutions, um, basically to finance my uh, PhD. And that allows me to do my, my scientific research. And most of the uh, other work I do is actually in the same area. So focusing on the procurement of uh, social care services. And have you been doing that for how long? I've been doing that since uh, 2000 and, uh, well, late 2013, uh, starting around well, 2000, uh, early 2014, actually. Moving on to the actual research that you're doing, can you provide us with a little bit more detail? What are you actually doing your work on? Yeah, and I'll pay a bit of attention to the context in the Netherlands as well. Sure. So my research focuses on the procurement of social care services. And in healthcare procurement, uh, we distinguish between two types. Uh, you have procurement for healthcare, which actually boils down to uh, buying anything from rubber gloves to equipment that is necessary in the process of providing healthcare, for example, a buyer in, in a hospital. That is on the one hand, and on the other hand, we uh, identify procurements of healthcare. So actually buying the healthcare services, often from a, a healthcare insurer, point of view or from uh, a public body's point of view, buying or commissioning healthcare services. And I strictly focus on, on the last part. And it's a very relevant topic. I focus mainly on the long-term care services, for example, home care and a lot of care services that are not as medical in nature. So it's not fixing broken bones or uh, doing surgery, but it's rather uh, the type of care services that allow people with a disability or people that, that come of age to keep living on their own, to participate in our society. 
So it's, for example, mental therapy for people with anxiety disorders or also sometimes pretty straightforward assisting elderly with doing doing their tasks around the house, cleaning their house. And in doing so, it prevents those people from having to move to an institutional home for the elderly. These kind of services, especially in developed nations, the expenditure on these kind of services is rapidly growing. And it's one of the main concerns or challenges in, in healthcare for a lot of developed nations as well, the, the expenses and the expenditure is quickly growing because of the, for example, the graying society. So in the Netherlands, for example, uh, we spend about 15 billion euros a year on these kind of services, both for adults and for youth. And it's actually growing at a rate of five or six percent a year, much faster than our economy is growing. So that provides a challenge and uh, a lot of other countries, the UK, I think the most countries in the uh, OECD face similar challenges. That is true. And it's certainly the case here in the UK. Yeah. In my research uh, context, what is very interesting is that in 2015, in order to do something against these uh, rising costs and also to to improve the quality. In the Netherlands, we underwent a massive system reform where where these services were previously centrally coordinated and centrally uh, arranged. Responsibilities switched, moved to uh, local governments, so the municipalities. We have about 400 in the Netherlands. From 2015, became responsible for uh, arranging and, and uh, thereby also procuring these social care services. It was one of the biggest system reforms in the last, I think, uh, 60 or 70 years. The budget involved, like I mentioned, is about 15 billion euros. And the municipalities got a lot of freedom to actually manage these services to their best insight. And that creates a very interesting situation where a lot of municipalities are choosing different ways of commissioning these services, choosing different ways of paying for these services. They are designing their own system of how people should apply for these services. And uh, a lot of different approaches are visible right now, which for me as a researcher is obviously uh, a very interesting position because I actually get to, on the one hand, investigate how municipalities are approaching the procurement and, and the commissioning of these services and then see if there is a if the difference between those approaches actually results in better or worse care for the citizens. So that is basically the main topic of my research. How are these municipalities contracting these care? And does a different approach lead to uh, improved quality, reduced costs, etc.? It's interesting because my impression here in the UK is that long-term care services are procured by local authorities separately from healthcare. So, and one of the discussions that I've I've seen over the years popping up 
time and time again, is actually merging long-term care or social care with healthcare uh, procurement. Because at least in the UK, there's the view that by keeping them separate, each one of those two systems tries to shift patients to the other system so that they don't have the cost. Yeah. So uh, what's the experience in the Netherlands if it's possible to to find any kind of um, information about it right now? One of the reasons for decentralizing long-term care to municipalities is in fact to try and uh, bundle a lot of responsibility within this social care sector with the same organization. So the, the, the municipalities have a very wide responsibility right now for any kind of support, social support, social services that may be necessary within uh, the, the situation of, of a client. So before, for example, the social care for youth was very fragmented in the Netherlands, where provinces had uh, responsibility for one part, regional offices of healthcare insurance agencies were responsible for a different part, and the local government, the central government was responsible for a third part. And all these different parts have now been combined and made the responsibility of the municipality. So indeed, there is still a distinction between the private, the curative healthcare procurement, so uh, uh, the procurement of hospital care and, well, basically any type of care that actually involves medical care, there's still a, a division and there is still also debates on whether certain types of care uh, will be decentralized in the future as well in order to, to optimize and be able to uh, manage as integrative care system as possible. But for now, these types of social and home care, as they are quite different from from the medical care you receive in a hospital, the municipalities already have quite a lot of responsibilities as they have right now. Okay. Moving on to the research that you have actually done uh, so far within your PhD, as far as I know, you're doing it in a similar way to one of my previous guests, Suvita Ponen. Uh, you're basically doing a PhD by publications, am I correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. So what have you been doing so far and what have you concluded in terms of research? One of the first things I started to do, I started right in the year 2014 when all the municipalities have had to contract these home care services. And what I did was, well, I wanted to, as a basis for my research, I wanted to find out to what extent these municipalities took different approaches with respect to procurement. They all came from before 2015. The procurement was standardized for the entire country. The same products, the same tariff structure, the same procurement procedures were applied. And the first thing I did when I started was to collect the procurement documents and tender procedures and any kind of information on how municipalities actually procured these services uh, for as many municipalities as possible. So I started making a database with all the tender documents, uh, all the, the, uh, the contracts I could find, and most of the municipalities actually uh, published these services. 
uh, are these contracts, uh, which is not, in 2014, was not actually required from public procurement regulations, because these services are actually back then part of the, the 2B services that were exempt from most of the public procurement regulations. But the municipalities, most of them published their contracts anyway. And I made a database of that. And in that database, I have about 95% coverage of all these tender documents of all Dutch municipalities. So there are approximately 400 municipalities. I have the tender documents for about 385, I think. That's a big data set. That's quite a big data set. I have to say, thank God for me, most of the municipalities <laughs> actually also collaborated. So it actually boiled down to 90 different tenders. Still, it's quite a big data set yeah. uh, because most tenders, well, if you have seen public tenders before, you know they can be contain quite a lot of different documents and quite a lot of extensive documents. I was a procurement lawyer, so I, I, know, <laughs> I know it works. Yeah. So... Then next thing I did was, well, to actually build a database with an analysis of these tender documents of, well, about 20 different factors, ranging from factors variables in, in uh, with did the municipality collaborate with the procurements, how big was the collaboration in size, how many different municipalities joined, what kind of procedure did they follow? And then there was a lot of negotiation going on and a lot of dialogue in those procedures. Was the procedure open for any kind of care supplier or did the municipality uh, invite a selection? What kind of products did they procure? Did they simply copy-paste the product lists that was used before 2015 or did they create new products? What kind of reimbursements did they apply? So I analyzed all those tenders based on all these factors. Also, what kind of tariffs did they pay? And I created uh, one quite big database based on on the procurement approach uh, each individual municipality or collaboration took. And this is actually, well, now my starting point to also write scientific papers based on on this data set. So I have a first paper out. It was just yesterday accepted at the the (laughs) ERA conference. So I'm I'm very pleased with that as a competitive paper where I present, well, the the results. I I first do an analysis of what kind of aspects are are relevant to, uh, to study. And I then present what the approach of the Dutch municipalities, how they went about this. Okay, very well. Moving on to the next stage of the interview, you're still working in practice, so you're just doing the research part-time and working at the Public Procurement Research Center in a part-time basis. So from your perspective, what are the challenges of managing this joint or dual track kind of life, managing research and practice side by side? Let me highlight first the the, the, the good things about it and then the, the challenges. Obviously, or what what I really like about the, the joint work is I get to apply the knowledge that I find from the research. I get to directly put that in practice or make use of that in practice. So more and more municipalities are inviting me 
to come and talk about my research. They want to know how do other municipalities tackle certain problems. They want to have an overview of uh, different approaches that may be possible. And well, because I analyze that for my, my research, I have a, a nice overview and I can directly put that in, in, into practice. And sometimes municipalities or also care providers, uh, well, they, they have like quite practical problems or issues they deal with. And it also keeps my research relevant to practice because I'm not just doing some very theoretical research because I, I know what kind of issues that the practitioners face. Uh, I can also know what, what kind of relevant research questions I should focus on to actually be able to do research that is directly relevant not only for for. Uh, the scientific uh, community and for for our knowledge, but also for for the practice. So that's what I very much like about my position. One of the main challenges, and I think every part-time researcher will uh, provide the same answer, is that for my work-related activities, there's always something, there's always a deadline, and there's always something waiting for an answer. And for my PhD, that may also be the case, but the deadline is is always a bit more soft. Or if I don't do the work this week, well, nobody is going to shout on the phone to me that I haven't finished my work. (laughs) So one of the big challenges is actually to, on a weekly basis, uh, make sure that I also spend enough time on research. And yeah, I, I don't have a very strict planning that the university keeps me to from when I should finish this article and when I should finish that article or that paper. But that actually increases the risk of not doing enough research and letting your agenda be uh, dominated by the work-related activities. It's interesting that you're highlighting that because I I felt exactly the same thing when I was doing my master's maybe 12, 13 years ago. And I was working as a lawyer at the time, and I just could not pull it off. Exactly because what you've said, because if you have work-related commitments, they tend to have very tight turnaround timescales attached to them. And yeah. certainly as a lawyer, that was the case. There's always stuff that needed to be done in that day. So you keep on pushing out for later and later those deadlines that are not as, as strict. And it's almost like an adult version of the marshmallow test that uh, it's done with kids. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that uh, if we delay gratification and actually work on those softer deadlines, you're going to be better off on the long, on the long term instead of just fighting fires every day. Yeah. But I, I could not pull it off. So I ended up actually, once my decision was made to do a PhD, in actually moving full-time. And I never consider even the possibility of doing it part-time as you're doing. So I have a huge respect for the researchers that are able to do those two different uh, jobs and roles at exactly the same time, because I find that incredibly, incredibly challenging. Now, one of the things that I really liked when I was a PhD student is that my supervisor was very, I wouldn't say strict, but very assertive with deadlines. And that is something that over the years, once I became a PhD supervisor myself as well, I found to appreciate more and more, which is it's important to give PhD candidates a certain structure and a certain timetable that builds on them a certain 
rota or a certain way of doing work so that they can expect to submit a piece of work, be it a paper, be it a chapter, alpha chapter, 5,000 words, whatever, with a certain cadence, i.e. a certain number of words, a certain number of pages every four weeks or every six weeks, because that creates the habit of producing work constantly. And that worked really well for me as a student, and it works well for most of my PhD students as well. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I think, and I have had these discussions with colleagues, that we sometimes leave PhD students uh, to their own devices and say, okay, they're doing a PhD, so they're supposed to be autonomous. It's up for them to manage their own time. And that is sometimes very hard, and especially I would say it's doubly hard for people like yourself when you have other competing interests, in this case, actually a part-time job elsewhere. Yeah. It is, for me, one of the main challenges. And um, having worked in, in, a, in a consultancy firm five years before starting my PhD, I think actually helps me to have the, to, to make the sure. Discipline. That the, yeah, the discipline. That's what I was going for, to have the discipline to make these uh, deadlines for myself. Although, yeah, like I just mentioned, it remains being challenging. Uh, I don't have a supervisor that's that strict with me and I can if I would have it probably would help uh, would help as well okay I'll send him an email saying that (laughs) (laughs) but I try to do this I'm collaborating also on on a few papers from time to time with others and I try to make uh, put deadlines on myself if I have agreed to work on something and to have it finished with uh, with a colleague it helps me because I, I hate to be late or to not uh, to not manage that deadline. So I do a lot of writing workshops. Uh, I, I visit a lot of writing workshops through my contacts at Ipsera. I get invited to writing workshops and I tend to use those those workshops and those days as deadlines to just make sure that I have something done, have a, a new version or a concept version of a working paper done. And working from conference to workshop to, well, uh, those are actually the deadlines that make sure that I, well, writing enough. Um, but to be honest, uh, right now for me, it becomes much more important than in the first year, because in the first year I did the collection of that data, and it was both for the PhD, but also for some external projects, uh, it was relevant. So up till now, I've been able to combine uh, a lot of the research activities with uh, my activities in practice, but the writing of jur- of, of scientific journal articles, uh, well, that's, that's purely for my PhD. So uh, I'm much more in the phase where I have to uh, produce those papers where a lot of the data is already collected. So it actually becomes much more important in this stage of my research to keep those deadlines and to keep in what you mentioned, the, the certain uh, cadence of producing scientific articles or book chapters compared to 2015 and early 2016. Very well. One final question. Just to cap the interview, you're going to be involved in the PhD for the next couple of years at least. Mm-hmm. What do you see yourself doing after you finish? Are you Do you want to stay connected with academia? Do you want to go back full-time to practice? 
To be honest, I, I don't know yet. I very much like uh, the position that we are in to be able to do really scientific research from a university point of view, producing to sometimes discuss about the research and the methods used with colleagues and, and uh, to be able to uh, well improve the quality of research compared to some of the reports written by by other firms, sometimes consultancy firms, that sometimes just need to quickly produce something with maybe a more uh, commercial motivation. So I really like the scientific base where we uh, where we come from. But yeah, of course, if I want to stay in science uh, and in academia, writing and producing, there's there's much more emphasis on that after the PhD, maybe. So. To be honest, I'm not sure yet. Very well. I think it's a great way to, to finish the interview. Niels, thank you very much for coming. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I, I feel like I haven't uh, discussed a lot in, in detail of, of, of some of the stuff I'm uh, I'm doing, but maybe that's also not for the greater audience, audience a bit less relevant. But um, I thank you for the opportunity. Uh, and uh, well, um, I think it's a very interesting way of, of sharing uh, research with uh, with the world. So uh, thank you, and uh, a very interesting uh, project you have. My pleasure. You can find me at my blog tales.eu or on Twitter, where I use two handles at Detic for general discussion and at Public Procure for public procurement related topics. As ever, I am grateful for the support of the British Academy Rising Star Engagement Awards, which made possible this project. If you like the show, it will be really, really helpful if you could rate it on iTunes, helping others finding it. Till next time.